This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, Another Way. This is Adam Eichen, the Equal Citizens Executive Director. You've been promoted. <laughs> I have. Uh, as you can see, I have my colleague and Equal Citizens founder, Lawrence Lessig, on with me today. Hi, Adam. Great to, great to be here. Yes, under, under some weird circumstances, Larry. So today we were actually supposed to put up the episode that I recorded a while ago now, interviewing the folks in Alaska that passed ranked choice voting there. A great interview, and I promise that I will eventually post that into the feed. Uh, but given the events of the past couple of days, Larry, we had to do an emergency podcast to try and understand, both for ourselves and for you, the listener, uh, what is going on in our democracy. So, Larry, there's a lot to talk about, about the last 48 to 72 hours. Let's start with the bad news of on Wednesday, there were insurrectionists that took over the Capitol building, something that I certainly never thought I'd see. I don't think you know you ever thought you'd see that either. So, can I get some reactions about that? What impact will this have for our system of government and, and democratic legitimacy more generally? So let's do this a little bit differently. Um, I mean, let's understand what Wednesday was supposed to be. Uh, and uh, it's against that background that the events that transpired are so striking, right? So Wednesday was to be the day that Congress opens the certificates that record the electoral votes from the 51 jurisdictions that cast electoral votes and then counts them. That's what the Constitution says. And of course, we did an emergency season of this podcast, working out all the ways in which bad faith actors could screw that process up. And we had a whole episode on the games that, for example, the vice president, in theory, might play. Um, to flip the result from what the democratic result was supposed to be. And what was so striking about what happened, maybe this is in the good news column on Wednesday, was that the vice president was quite tough in telling the president straight up that he was going to do nothing other than what most people expected his role to be, which is simply to open the certificates, hand them off to the tellers. These are two people from each chamber. And the tellers would report the numbers, and those numbers would then say um, who got the electoral votes in each of these, in each of these states. Um, and so that process, given there were no conflicting slates of electors, and there's an important footnote on that. We could dig in a little bit on that. But the way at least Mike Pence saw it, each of these states had just one slate of electors. And that slate of electors had been certified at least six days before the Electoral College was to vote. So what that means is, under federal law, Congress had no choice but to just accept the slate of electors so long as the slate had done what the slate was supposed to do, which is to cast their ballots and to sign them and certify them and send them to Congress, which every one of these states did. So in theory, this was to be a completely boring ceremonial um, as uh, Josh Hawley put it, uh, antiqu antiquity inside of our constitutional process for selecting the president. But of course, that's not how it played out. Two incredibly important things happened. And from my perspective, 
um, they're both equally extraordinary. The one incredible thing that happened was that Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, uh, was the youngest senator, but after John Ossoff is uh, sworn in, he will be the second youngest senator in the United States Senate. But um, Josh Hawley had announced prior to uh, uh, sometime at the end of December that he was going to object to the votes as they were being counted from certain states. He was most particularly interested in Pennsylvania, but there was a list of these states. And what was astonishing about that claim that he was going to object is that there was no legal basis for that objection at all. I've done this very long blog post you can find on my Medium page where I take his speech explaining what he was doing and I go through it line by line and I show, I think, pretty clearly, but my view is not controversial among at least people who know about the law, there was no basis in law for him to believe he had any right to interfere in this process. Um, uh, you know, he said he was just trying to uh, uh, answer the concerns that his constituents had about what happened. He just thought we should go through it and like address the issues in a way that could resolve them one way or the other. He and Ted Cruz proposed that they delay the process for 10 days while a commission goes through all the charges that, of course, 60 courts have already gone through and determine one way or the other whether the vote should be counted. But what that process, what that suggestion just ignored is that there was no right to go through that process. Congress was obligated under the Electoral Count Act to simply count the votes. And it was, you know, from a Federalist perspective, and a great insult to the to the um, role of the states to basically say, you, you've you um, counted your votes, you've certified the process after going through contests that have been executed in the states, you've certified them in time according to the Electoral Count Act. Now, after you've certified them in time, we're just going to do our own review. We're going we're gonna to look at the same things and we're going to decide whether we think you did a good job or not. And if you don't think you did a good job, then in pr principle, at least, you can imagine them saying we ought to throw out the electoral votes. It was astonishing and completely unprecedented. Never in the history of America has any member of Congress purported to throw away or to question the validity of slates of electors that were not even in contest. There weren't two slates from these states. Never before has this happened. It happened solely because Josh Hawley was keen to signal to the base of the Donald Trump um, organization that he supported Donald Trump. And, and that signal um, was important to him politically. But my view is that signal was just throwing a lighted match into a well-kindled tinderbox because it reaffirmed what the president was saying, which, of course, I've gone on for a long time, but it's good, of course, was the second astonishing thing that happened. You had a president who organized a rally on the day these votes were to be counted, where he basically told the, didn't basically, expressly told the audience that the election was a sham, that he had, that his votes, that he had won, he had won big, his votes were stolen from him, everybody knew it, he said, and that uh, they should march down uh, to the Capitol and make sure that their representatives and senators heard them. Of course, hearing wasn't what he expected would happen. What he expected would happen is what happened. They got down there, the frenzy was uncontrolled, a number of them broke into the Capitol, 
and they um, and they literally desecrated. I mean, there was there was feces spread on uh, parts of the hallways in the House of Representatives. People went into offices, including Nancy Pelosi's office, and just um, you know treated it as as if it was a public restroom. And it was astonishing the disrespect and violence that this demonstrated. But in some, in an important way, um, I, I, what I hope we get to talk about is who's really responsible here. You know, I mean, uh, there have been a lot of times over the past two months, especially when we've been working through on our podcast, what might happen if uh, things go south, if they exercise illegal discretion, if Mike Pence had exercised illegal discretion, what would happen then? You know, so imagine if Mike Pence had done what Donald Trump had wanted him to do. Imagine if Mike Pence had said, well... You know, Pennsylvania, there's only one slate of electors that the legislature had anything to do with, but there's this other slate that was also sent in, because there was. Um, And I think that slate for Donald Trump is the slate that we should count. And if he had done that with Arizona, if he'd done that with Michigan, with, um, with Georgia, if he had done that with each of them... And then said, well, I'm the presiding officer, so my vote, my ruling stands unless both houses vote against it. And imagine that the Senate didn't vote against it. So that imagine Mike Pence just ruled himself into a second term and Donald Trump into a second term. What would we have done? What would we have done if that election was stolen in that sense? And, you know, I've had many conversations with people which is like, you know, that's revolution. That's just... Un, un, unbelievable that they would do it, and if they did it, then we would have to fight. Um, I think we need to recognize the way in which the other side was there. That's exactly where they were. They had been convinced that this election was stolen from them. Now, you know, my view is that there's no basis at all, in fact, for that view. But we can see the industry that was so committed to convincing them of this. The industry, you know, whether it's Fox News or OAN or Breitbart or, um, you know, the, the, the Twitter feeds and the, um, the Facebook news um, uh, or private groups, all of these groups or parlor, all of these groups profited from pers- persuading the public that this was a stolen election. And of course, Donald Trump, um, I, you know, I sometimes wonder whether he, you know, I think he actually believes it. I mean, it was just astonishing, which just shows the measure of insanity here. But I... Whatever, these people led 38% of America to believe the election was stolen. And so sometimes I think, you know, if I thought the election was stolen, would I do everything I could to, to take it back? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And so I think this means what we should do is focus on the enablers, the people who, knowing that they were leading people into a fundamentally false understanding of what happened, still did it you know, whether that's Fox News or OAN. And then also um, people like Josh Hawley uh, or Ted Cruz. What they did is completely inexcusable because they know better. You know, Tuberville doesn't know that there are three branches of government or he can't name the three branches of government. So I forgive him. Like if he doesn't understand the intricacies of the Electoral Count Act, fine. But Josh Hawley was a law professor. He graduated from the Yale Law School. He clerked for Chief Justice 
uh, Roberts and for Michael McConnell, who is uh, one of the, was one of the greatest judges in the Tenth Circuit. He is no dummy. He's extremely smart, and that's what makes this more outrageous and more scary. He knew there was no right for him to do what he did. It didn't bother him. He did what he did because he knew that was the way to put himself out there as the leader of this populist right-wing faction in America and to cement his opportunity in 2024 to inherit President Trump's base. And I think that one of the things to, to really underscore here, which really I haven't seen as part of the narrative about this riot, this insurrection, is that, as you say, it was produced by the decades of anti-democratic rhetoric um, that we've seen, that we've been arguing against, that we, you know, that the folks like the Heritage Foundation and, you know, in the, the W. Bush years uh, were peddling, knowingly false, about voter fraud, all the times that they've tried to justify voter ID laws to uh, discourage young people or people of color or the elderly from voting. This is the logical consequence. This is what happens when you peddle anti-democratic lies. It's that people begin to believe it. People begin to believe that millions of non-citizens are voting. Millions of yeah. dead people are voting. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But but I think it's important. I, I'm not sure what the right adjective here is. Um, you know, Josh Hawley on the floor of the Senate uh, invoked uh, Lincoln's... Um, uh, frame of, you know, we have a system to avoid going from ballots to bullets. And, and you know, that's why violence is always wrong, Josh Hawley said. And, um, and you can, you know, when you look at what happened in uh, secession in, you know, 1861, that was a case where we moved from ballots to bullets. You know, there's the ballots. President Lincoln was elected. The South said, hell no. We're not going to accept President Lincoln as our president, so we're going to secede. Um, so there's no debate about um, whether the Democratic results were as they were reported to be. There was just, we're just not going to accept it. We're anti-democratic in that sense. Um, but that's not quite what was going on here. These people were in some sense deeply democratic. They just had the false facts. Like they deeply believed that, you know, the winner was Donald Trump, that he got more votes than Joe Biden, and that the uh, and that the evidence that he didn't um, was all manufactured. It was all completely fraudulent. And again, I just say, you know, if it were the other way around, what would we say? I I, I think the, it's an important point of optimism to say both sides here believe, in some sense, in democracy. It's just the facts that we were processing were so radically different. One side. Um, you know, believe that these were just fake ballots, that there was lots of illegality going on here. You know, at least we didn't have the three million uh, Mexicans claim this time. It would have been hard to imagine seven million illegal aliens <laughs> voting uh, this time around to, to produce the majority for Joe Biden. But, um, but still, there was this belief that the Democratic a machine, like this was the whole story about Philadelphia, the Democratic machine swept in in the middle of the night and stuffed the ballot boxes with what they needed to, to do to get to the numbers they needed to get, they, all these, this, these ridiculous allegations that more people voted than were registered. All of these things were designed to trade off of a common belief in democracy to prove that their guy had been cheated, not that 
their guy lost, but the hell with democracy. Let's just let's just throw out. Let's just make sure that we have him in a second term. So that's optimistic because if we could just get them to understand the facts, if we could all understand the same facts, we wouldn't have such a deep um, conflict. But it's also scary because the idea that in this context you could you could have an engineered effort to convince the public that uh, this election was stolen and succeed in convincing 38% of the public that the election was stolen is terrifying. And, and, and it's even more terrifying when you realize how much it paid. Like, what was Fox News going to do? This election happens. If Fox News had reported the facts the way the facts were, be much less attention to Fox News. They would have lost extremely significant portion of their ad revenue. So... They choose to report it in a different way. They choose to, you know, follow the kind of conspiracy thinking of Tucker Carlson or any number of those other talking heads whose main focus is just to rally up the base. Um, and, and so the incentive to falsity is real. And, you know, usually you're like, well, that's okay because the truth will win out. No. <laughs> in this world of fragmented media where you've got... Uh, algorithms that feed you what you want to believe, the truth isn't going to win out automatically. And so what do we do when we have this machine that can basically produce two sides to any question and then incite one side to go to war against the other on the basis of that difference? Yeah, it's very scary. And it's also very scary that there were a number of Nazi paraphernalia or white supremacists, uh, paraphernalia of the people storming the Capitol. So what are the consequences here for the, the elites, an elite not in any sort of derogatory or any other way than to say the, the people who are actually peddling these lies knowingly, the Josh Hawleys, the Ted Cruz's, the people at Fox News? I mean, I guess let's just start with, with the senators. What is the punishment here? What, 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 is there a way to hold these politicians accountable for what they knowingly did, the riot that they incited by their own lies? Well, you know, so we're talking on Friday, and a lot's going to happen um, over this weekend and the next couple of days. Um, and there's an optimistic way of thinking about what's going to happen here, which is uh, this is a kind of wake-up call in the Republican Party. There are many of those Republicans, you know, who are extremely conservative, Tom Cotton, uh, Rand Paul, um, Mitch McConnell, who looked at the game that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz had played and were just literally disgusted. I mean, you know, obviously Romney was going to be disgusted. And Romney, you know, was in some sense the moral center of the Republican Party in this debate. But the idea that these otherwise fully committed right-wing conservatives, Mike Lee, just stood back and said, wait a minute, this is just wrong. It's just wrong from the constitutional perspective. It's wrong from a political perspective. It's wrong from a democratic perspective. That was hopeful, and it's hopeful in the sense that maybe it will trigger in the Republican Party a kind of division. You know, you know. Remember the Whigs, um, the party that you know was a very dominant party um, before the uh, Civil War, that then was rendered into two because of their split views on slavery. It's kind of the same thing here. The Republican Party is facing a choice: is it the party of Trump? Um, or is it a party that has ideals that are separate from this megalomaniac uh, Trump? And um, and so one hopeful story is the party begins to split. They decide that um, characters like Cruz, who is you know since his shutdown of the government in his 
maiden years a senator, he's been hated by Republicans. And now Josh Hawley is, uh, you know, kind of the Cruz wannabe. Um, you know, maybe the Republicans just punish them. Maybe they just push them to the side. And uh, and if that happens, then in a certain sense, we've learned something. Uh, and that's hopeful. So the other side, though, uh, you know, Bruce Ackerman gave this really terrifying um, interview uh, for a, a German um, television station. And um, he said, you know, this is, this is the equivalent of the uh, Beer Hall Putsch in the 1920s in, uh, in Germany. Um, and what happened immediately after those efforts uh, by the Nazis to um, take over was there was, in the Weimar Republic, a kind of renewed commitment to democratic values. And so the, for a number of years, there was like this renewed commitment and this commitment to the idea of like not allowing these extremists to disrupt the orderly process. But of course, the extremists continued and eventually they got the upper hand and they were able to, 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 to succeed. And, and that's the real question here. You know, everybody looked at the strategy of Donald Trump before he won and said he can't possibly win with that. And when he won, they all said, oh my God, if people behave like this and they can win, what's the limit? And then you look at somebody like Josh Hawley, who is every bit as populist, um, much more, uh, much smoother, much smarter, much uh, more compelling a, a, a candidate. And if you, if you see that he's not willing to accept the truth, um, he's not willing to constrain himself by the truth. It's terrifying. And and so four years from now, where's the Republican Party going to be? I, I'm not sure. Um, but wherever they are, I think that um, uh, we're going to have a clear sense of it in the next week. But so, Larry, this brings up a really important point point here because, you know, I think so, listeners may may think, well, we're, we're a pro-democracy organization. And, and one of the most amazing parts of a democratic system is that it's open to anybody who earns enough votes to be elected to office. And so someone might say, well, so what are you saying? So should Hawley or Cruz be expelled or something like that? Um, but, but this is a real question for democratic theorists, right? And it doesn't necessarily have an easy answer, but it's something I want you to tease out a little bit, given what the remarks you just made, of what do we do when those who are duly elected, like a Hawley or Cruz, are opening, openly undermining the democratic system itself? Um, how do we as democracy advocates understand and react to such a situation uh, where democracy may be threatened by politicians who are elected? Well, I, you know, no system survives if there aren't certain ground rules that are respected. Uh, and one of those ground rules has got to be truth. You just got to tell the truth. Um, and this was like the interchange between Holly and... Um, Romney on the Senate floor debating when they came back after the riot um, and they were debating, uh, continuing the debate on Arizona. And, you know, Ted Cruz and Holly had stood up and said that they were objecting because there are so many people in their states who were really skeptical about the electoral results. And so they needed to respect the views of their constituents by taking the issue up and like raising these objections. And, and Romney said, the best way to respect the views of your constituents is to tell them the truth. If they think this election was stolen, tell them it wasn't because it wasn't. And, and I think that democracy, this was an insight that Hitler's people had early on, and certainly Stalin had as well. Democracy fails when truth is not its constraint. And 
it doesn't do well forcing people to be honest. Um, indeed, it doesn't really have the tools in the American conception of democracy to force them to be honest, because the First Amendment says we can't regulate what they say. This is like beyond the touch, beyond the pale of what a government can do. So if we don't have people committed to these basic values, it's not clear we can succeed, uh, survive as a democracy. But that's why I'm saying that I think that in the next couple of years, we'll see whether the party tries to exercise the discipline to bring reality back into the center. Um, and it's not clear the party has that power. I mean, they can do what they want in the Senate. But when the next president is going to de be determined on by um, you know, the contest in the media, and you have figures like you know, Tucker Carlson running for president and Josh Hawley running for president and Ted Cruz running for president, people who have no hesitation to do whatever it takes, um, it's a real challenge for democracy. And it really forces us to think about how we can improve or update our system of uh, understanding in a way that doesn't make us so vulnerable to these fabricators um, and, the, and the damage they do. Yeah, and this is something that we're going to have to think a lot about in the new year. I mean, these are very serious challenges, and, and kind of the consequences of not dealing with them are profound. Um, and so in some respects, the, the storming of the Capitol building in, in the past uh, in a couple of days was a, hopefully a wake-up call that, um, in, you know, that the, the status quo just can't hold, that this, this is what it looks like when democracy is faltering. This is what a democratic system looks like when it's not performing. This is not the American demo democratic system that we learn about in the textbooks. I mean, we've been deconstructing through the length of this podcast, the ways in which the democratic system is broken and why it's not your the same thing that's been, you know, uh, you read about in the textbook. But but this is a whole nother level of broken. Um, but it's certainly the logical consequence, again, as you were saying, of of all sorts of, of issues here. And certainly one is when one side is not uh, wedded to truth. Right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, again, in the middle of this story and we don't know what plays out now. You know, so... Imagine um, the president is impeached and as a way to signal, virtue signal, uh, you know, enough Republicans, half of the Republican caucus votes to convict. And as a, and as a uh, element of that conviction, it includes you can't run for president again, period. You've, you're disqualified. Um, and, you know, the discipline on the Hill continues. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell fired... Uh, the sergeant at arms at the Senate, Nancy Pelosi said the same thing was happening in the House. They fired the head of the Capitol Police. You know, all of these allegations that these guys were actually sympathetic, that they were resisting the pushback, they kind of almost encouraged um, by their passivity um, this to happen. Um, if those people are punished too, um, and then to the extent that any of the rumors about, you know, the alliances inside the military are true, if those people are punished too, if all of these people face consequences that are severe, then you can begin to imagine the system correcting itself. Um, so you, can't, you shouldn't be able to get away with inciting insurrection. You just shouldn't. Um, and, you know, the fact that it's only two weeks until you're going to be quote-unquote gone anyway is actually not an argument because, you know, if he walks out of here... Um, you know, with his base and continues for the next four years claiming that, you know, Joe Biden's not legitimate. You know, he's got the right birth certificate, but he didn't get elected in the right way, according to Donald Trump. Um, 
then uh, he's going to do enormous damage over the next four years. And whether he can position himself as the next candidate or one of these, um, you know, wannabes like Josh Hawley, it uh, doesn't really matter. His influence here, unconstrained by truth, will continue to have its really disruptive effect. And that's why I think the question about consequences right now is so significant. Nobody defends really what happened. So nobody should oppose consequences for those who enabled what happened. And even if we can't, you know, lock up Fox News, um, which, you know, I believe we can't because I believe the First Amendment protects uh, even the willful and the, um, the um, um, in some sense, corrupt to the truth. Uh, um, we can take steps against those who had a obligation because of their role to do the right thing. Um, and the pretenders, the Josh Hollies, who suggest that what he was doing had any basis in law, ought to be scorned and shamed. And, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of people in Missouri who would love to see somebody challenge him, and there are a lot of great people in Missouri who should. Yeah. And, and I know that there have been calls already. I think the number three Democrat, Murray, uh, came out and said that Hawley should resign. Um, so we'll see, we'll see where that goes. I mean, I highly doubt he would ever do that. But I do wonder if there will be any effort to at least censure him, if not remove him. Although I think the latter option is, is highly unlikely. But yeah. it certainly seems like some punishment is needed for violating such a core norm of the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's striking about him, and I don't think we know yet enough about him, to know what's explaining what happens. Uh, you know, he's always doing these things that, you know, Trump-like are extremely uh, popular with the Trumpist base, but that have no connection to reality. So, for example, objecting on January 6th, that's one example. Another example is, you know, after he did what he did, uh, his publisher told him that the book that they were going to publish, which is obviously his Here's how, Here's Why I Want to Be President book, they weren't going to publish. They didn't want to publish it anymore, that he had so um, uh, destroyed his uh, character or reputation that they didn't want to be associated with him. He then went on Twitter and he said, this is violating the First Amendment. They don't want to have anything to do. I'm, we're going to be suing them. And, and I was like, you know, he said, this is Orwellian. That's how he started. Um, they don't like my servicing my constituents. And so they're canceling my book. I'm going to sue them. Uh, the First Amendment uh, needs to be defended. And you're like, talk about Orwellian. Here's a private company who decides they don't want to have anything to do with somebody who is now understood to be an insurrectionist. And he, he, a member of the United States Senate, is threatening legal action against them. You know, where does the First Amendment apply? It doesn't apply to what the publisher is doing. It applies to what he's doing. And, and so when he does that, you know, the law professor part in me kind of wants to just be in a faculty workshop with him and say, you don't really believe what you're saying, do you? And what I fear is that he would actually say, yeah, no, no, I don't believe that. But, you know, that works. It works. This is the way to set me up as the anti-cancel culture candidate, whether what I say is true or not to that end. So, Larry, you know, all of those things that we just talked about are extremely depressing. And, and I agree, we'll, we'll know more soon. But, and we should have another episode about this, but we have to touch a little bit on the fact that at the same time that they were airing the insurrection at the Capitol building, the cable news networks did call the, the final of the two Senate races in Georgia for John Ossoff, which means that both Warnock and Ossoff, both Democrats, won the runoff race, which means your 
favorite politician in America, Larry, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> that's a joke for our listeners who don't know Larry very well, uh, will no longer be the majority leader of the Senate, which means, Larry, that for the first time in at least six years, but probably longer, democracy reform will be possible. Now, Larry, I don't know in what fashion and, and whether or not we're going to be able to get H.R. 1, which is the omnibus bill we've been fighting for, which tackles things like gerrymandering, voter suppression, um, has public financing of for congressional races, has everything that we've ever talked about, maybe with the exception of reforming the way we elect the president, uh, actually do, uh, restoring the Voting Rights Act, and then ranked choice voting. But outside of those three things, it's basically everything we talk about on this podcast. What are you feeling about that, Larry? So on the same day that we, we see kind yeah. of the biggest assault on our, our the, the symbol of our democracy, um, and this isn't a partisan statement, but the, the results of an election are now going to allow for us to actually potentially make progress on federal legislation to shore up and indeed advance our democracy to a place where it's never been before. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, because you and I were exchanging emails that morning, Wednesday morning, we woke up, we were both extremely excited. Um, we wrote uh, uh, a celebratory email because controversially, um, we had decided to bring equal citizens into that fight. And we, um, and we wanted to get into that fight because we realized if Mitch McConnell was the majority leader of the Senate, nothing of the issues that we care about would have any chance of progress for two, maybe four years. Uh, and so this fight was, in some sense, existential for us. If Mitch McConnell was in charge, there was no reason to do our work. If he's not in charge, there's at least a reason to fight. Um, and so, yeah, we launched a you know, Give Joe a Chance campaign or, you know, Demote the Dark Lord campaign, depending on your uh, perspective. Um, and... <laughs> Well, yeah, I actually kind of feel bad now about how harsh I am to Mitch McConnell because, you know, he's been a pretty good guy um, in the transition from Wednesday on. I mean, you know, he's been he was harsh. His speech on the floor. No, I agree. I'm not I'm not saying I feel too, too bad. But, you know, the point is, I'm not sure he's the worst person now. I'm, I'm you know, targets like the pathetic Cruz or Josh Hawley might be more appropriate. But anyway, he as majority leader was going to block everything. And now he is not. And I think there's a real shot that H.R. 1 is going to pass the House. They're going to introduce it. It's already been introduced, but they're going to try to pass it as quickly as they can. And then it goes to the Senate, and we have a lot to fight about uh, to get it in the Senate. But, you know, the things that are in some sense the most controversial um, are actually not terribly controversial to some of the most conservative Democrats. So Joe Manchin has been a supporter of public funding of campaigns forever, forever. And so he's not going to oppose that part of H.R. 1, which is, in my view, the most important change in H.R. 1. So we have a lot of hopeful work to do over the next six months or year to get uh, as many of these changes into law as we can. And given the Republicans' commitment to worrying about election security, then maybe at least we can get some movement on improving the efficiency and the, and the, um, the completeness uh, of the very mechanisms of voting. So there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful now that we have um, a Congress that's at least controlled by people who are open to the idea of change. Uh, and that's going to be a lot of work over the next um, year to make that hope into a reality. 
Yeah, and, and I, I do want to say, Larry, that this really is kind of the culmination of, of the work you've been doing for the last over over a decade now, Larry, in terms of, you know, this is the vision. The vision was to to have a chance, a real chance to to pass these reforms. I mean, the Democrats, when they held a control, unified control of Congress and the presidency in 2009 into 2010, they didn't do anything about the process issues. And in fact, they they kind of didn't it wasn't even a part of their agenda. They didn't see it as important at all. And then they got scorned. And then Republicans gerrymandered in 2011. And then the Democrats essentially lost control in an un- undemocratic system for the next eight years. They retook it. But the Senate is undemocratic. The list goes on. We've talked about it. But now it seems like Democratic leadership, and it actually doesn't just seem, we know Democratic leadership is fully on board with preventing the kind of minoritarian politics that we've seen. The system of gerrymandering that renders most congressional elections totally uncompetitive, the voter suppression that's rampant in states like Georgia and Texas and Mississippi, and the list goes on. And so that is a real reason to be hopeful that this isn't 2009 again. This is very different than when you started up the fight, Larry. And and we really do have a chance because the folks in Washington, at least on the Democratic side, and again, hopefully some Republicans come around, are ready to to get this through Congress. And so we'll have to see, and we'll, you know, Larry, we'll do another podcast really, really soon about, you know, what is the state of play on HR1, what the, you know, the, the new Democratic Senate means for our fight, the role equal citizens will have in it, and and why we're hopeful. And, and in fact, we'll have many more conversations and maybe we'll have a whole, you know, multi-part series about what HR1 is, because it's a very complex legislation. But, you know, all that being said, Larry, we started this conversation off really in, in kind of a bleak fashion. But I think it's really important to emphasize that as dark as Wednesday was, as bleak as it was, um, we now have a shot, a shot that we weren't expecting to have, to finally pass federal legislation to prevent the worst practices in the anti-democratic politics that we've faced for the last decade. And I'm enthusiastic. Indeed, I'm I'm so ready to get to work here, Larry. And and as you said earlier, I'm taking over as executive director uh, of Equal Citizens. And I'm just really excited to be in this fight, Larry. And I think that you are too. And I'm excited for the next uh, six to 12 months to try and get this through Congress. Yeah, I think perspective is important here. You know, when Barack Obama was elected president, even though during the campaign, he had talked repeatedly about the need for reform. Um, you know, the, the phrase that I committed to memory when I heard it from him, if we don't take up the fight, the fight to change the way Washington works, then real change, change that will make a lasting difference in the lives of ordinary Americans will keep getting blocked by the defenders of the status quo. Even though that's what he said in the primary when he became the general election candidate, that rhetoric disappeared and we became president. It was nowhere on the agenda. And more importantly, even if you could get members of the administration to recognize particular problems that needed to be fixed, gerrymandering wasn't as salient as it should have been, but um, money in politics or voting uh, rights. Everybody thought about it as just like one silver bullet uh, after another. And the really important opportunity we have right now is both that we have leaders in Congress who are committed to reform and that the reform is comprehensive. Nobody's talking about, you know, if we could just fix money in politics, then that'll fix everything. If we just fix gerrymandering, that'll fix everything. What, what's been accomplished by the work of many, many people is to bring the political elite to recognize that they can't govern if they don't make these fundamental changes. And these fundamental changes are systemic. They are much more than tiny little tweaks in corners of election law. They are fundamental 
to restore something like a representative democracy. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, we did a lot of work in the campaigns to get every candidate to commit to this. And uh, Joe Biden at the end committed to it. Um, and Joe Biden's got a lot of problems he's got to face uh, uh, coming, you know, uh, uh, January 21st, um, the pandemic right at the top of the list. But we're now in a time when people get it. Uh, and and that is what's hopeful. They get it. We have the votes to get it passed. Now we just have to fight those who are going to resist the change because the change will make their life um, not more difficult, just make their life less wealthy. And that's going to be the struggle. Couldn't said it better myself. Larry, thanks for joining me today. We're going to have many more of these conversations in the years ahead. Uh, it's both a dark day, but also maybe the start of something really positive for our democracy. So Larry, we'll talk to you soon. Great. And uh, Adam, thanks for thanks also for stepping up and, and taking the lead inside of Equal Citizens. It's going to be fun to work with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. I look forward to it, Larry. This has been another episode of Another Way. We'll see you next time.